Let's take our Bibles and turn this morning to the book of Judges, chapter 2, Judges, chapter 2, reading at verse 1. Let's hear the word of God. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this that you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept, and they called the name of that place Bochim, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. One of the things that I think I'm going to have to be repeating as we go through the book of Judges has to do with how we transpose what we read there to the world in which we live today. As we read the Old Testament, it would be quite wrong for us to apply what we, the lessons we learn there from ancient Israel to the national or political entity, any national or political entity, today. No contemporary nation equates with Old Testament Israel. Now, there have been times when that equation has been made in the minds of the church. When it was the dominant force in a nation or on a continent, as in Europe, a confusion occurred between the church and the state, if you will. Jesus made that distinction very clear when he said to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants, my disciples, would be fighting you right now. But they weren't. Jesus is making very clear that when we think about Israel then and Israel now, we are not to think of any nation, any nation you know, any nation there is. I mean, there was a time when England thought it was a holy nation. Uh, did those feet in ancient times walk upon England's mountain, whatever it was? It's English, I never memorized it very carefully. But there was a time when England thought it was, a, it was uh, the holy nation. And I think there was a time when America thought that because Christianity was its dominant religion, although not exclusive religion, its dominant religion, that it was, by definition, a kind of Israel, a, a light shining on a hilltop. A picture, by the way, used of the church, not of any nation. Than the church, other than the church. As it is, when we read Judges, for example, or any Old Testament book, 
It is the church as God's people that is the proper correspondence to biblical Israel. And as the church, its existence is quite different from that of any nation-state. Its warfare, for example, and its weapons are not physical, material, iron, or technological weapons. They are spiritual. The armor that we put on is the whole armor of God that we read about in Ephesians 6. The enemies that we face are not flesh and blood. They're principalities and powers. We're up against the world. That is the world system with its ideas and its philosophies and its ideas and, and its, its, uh, its motivations. The world, the flesh, that is the enemies that are within us. And the devil who manipulates those enemies within and the world without in order to trip us up and do us damage. Israel is the church. As Paul calls it, the Israel of God. And so as we read the story of the judges, we are reading of the story of a period in the life of God's church, ancient Israel. God's church then as it declines in its spiritual potency and power. Now, that's been the message of chapter 1, as we see an assessment of the church. And as we read that first chapter, we learned, we learned last time two important life, letter, life lessons. First of all, that the success of any work of God whether it's inside of us or outside by the church, is directly related to our dependence on God and our obedience to His Word. So in chapter 1, we learned of some successes at the beginning of of, uh, this great enterprise of taking and populating the promised land. We saw the people inquiring of God. They were waiting on God for instructions. God told them that they should follow the lead of uh, the tribe uh, of David. Uh, David hadn't come along then, but the tribe of Judah was the tribe from which David would come, Messiah would come, and it's the tribe uh, of uh, Judah that leads the attack. And they are successful. They, they take two of the large cities of Jerusalem and Bethel in the promised land. And the lesson for us from that as Christians is that we too can call upon God's name and we can trust that God will hear us from heaven and answer our prayers. Let me read to you from 1 John chapter 5. This is the confidence that we have towards Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. Take that home with you, and you can lie on that as your pillow this evening. Any success in the work of God is directly related to our dependence on God and our obedience to God. And then the second thing we learned was that the failure of a work of God, either within us or in the church and the world, lies in direct relation to a people, God's people, doing, quote, all 
that the Lord commands. You see, these Israelites, they, they were selective in their obedience. They thought if they did this and this, they didn't really need to do that. Those were indifferent things. As long as they did these things, these are the, the main points of what it means to be holy and live a Christian life. If I'm doing those things, everything is all fine. doesn't matter what I'm neglecting or ignoring or overlooking. And so, what happens, as we read in Judges chapter 1, is that they were supposed to clear the land of the people, and they didn't. They were supposed to uh, destroy the, uh, the theological infrastructure of pagan religion in Canaan, and they didn't. And when we glance at the account of their actions in chapter 1, in the end, it all seems to descend into farce. Judah takes Jerusalem, a splendid battle, a splendid outcome. They capture the entire city of Jer- Jerusalem. What did they do? They let the uh, Jebusites, the inhabitants, remain with their pagan ways. And they're going to destroy the church from within. Or, or the Amalekites, or the, sorry, the Asherites. They, they capture a city, and instead of excluding the people who were living there, they let them keep control. They, they were the mayor. They ran the infrastructure of the city. The people of God, instead of taking the city, went into the city as, as visitors, as it were. And the Canaanites dominated. And then there were the people of the southern tribes, sorry, the northern tribes. They came up with an alternative to their obedience. They went in and they took over the cities, but they subjected the Canaanite populations to servitude. They used them as forced labor. That was a great economic decision that they had as they did that. But it was something explicitly forbidden in the law of God that Israel, when it took over another nation, should not subjugate and put its people into servitude. They broke the law of God. That's where we are when we get to chapter 2. God's assessment of the church is that it has played fast and loose with God's Word. It's done what it wanted with the Word of God. It's, it's obeyed up to the degree it was comfortable, and then it's stopped. And sometimes you and I do that in our own lives. Well, the second, and here we come to the chapter itself, is the address, of, the address to the church by the angel of the Lord. An angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bochim. The angel of the Lord. Some people think that word angel, which means a messenger or a minister, refers to a human being. It doesn't refer to a human being here. This man, this uh, angel is no prophet. No prophet is ever described like this in the Bible. In fact, in the Bible, prophets are usually called prophets. Or on the rare occasion they're not, they're called the man of God. And uh, no mere prophet in the Bible ever identifies themselves as closely with God as this angel does here. He is the angel of the Lord. The prophets, when they stood up, made it very clear to distinguish. They were the agents, they were the instruments 
their signature introduction was usually, thus says the Lord. They're distancing themselves from what the Lord is saying. Thus says the Lord. But in this passage, the angel speaks as God. And he speaks the word of God, which is Christ, of course. He speaks the word of God, which issues from Christ. And he speaks it in the power of the Holy Spirit so that we hear God himself, the Trinity, speaking to Israel. Now, when we pay attention to the words that are used here, we learn some more about this angel. I said that angels are ministers and messengers of God. That angels in the Bible are his instruments through which God makes his presence known and his word heard by his people. And the angel of the Lord, as an instrument of God, very frequently speaks as the Lord to his people. And that's what he does here. It's the Lord talking, the Lord speaking. You find a bit of it like this in the book of Revelation also. And uh, he's coming up from Gilgal. That's another interesting little thing to notice. Gilgal is a very specific place. It's on the banks of the River Jordan. It's near the city of Jericho. It was the place where Israel, after wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, when they crossed the River Jordan, remember, on dry ground, They landed on the other side and they took great rocks out of the riverbed while the water was out the road uh, and and they made a, a circle of these great rocks as a memorial to the point that this was the point where Israel had crossed the Jordan into the promised land, Gilgal. And it was there that when they were, had arrived in the city of Jericho, a well-protected garrison was the first great hurdle they had to cross. That as uh, Joshua was out in the field one day looking at the city and wondering, how do we take this great city? He saw a man, and he asked the man who he was, and the, the man replied that he was the commander of the Lord's army. And Joshua was a bit interested. He went a bit closer uh, to the man. And he said, tell me more about who you are. He said, I'm the commander of the army of the Lord, and I've come to you. Joshua realized he was in the presence of the divine, and he fell down on his face, and he, he worshiped God. And the angel said to him, or he said to the angel, what is my Lord have to do to his servant. What do you want me to do, Lord? And the angel says these words. The Lord says these words through the angel. Put off your shoes from off your feet for the place where you stand is holy. And Joshua did so. The words that God had said to Moses in the desert before Moses went to rescue Israel from its captivity are the words God said to Joshua as he stands there, ready to capture Canaan that had been promised to Israel in God's name. And so the angel goes up from Gilgal. 
bringing all of this story together, as it were, on his way. He's coming as the angel of the Lord. He's coming as the commander of the Lord's armies. He's coming as the Lord's instrument through whom God was going to speak to his people. Now, this angel is not to be regarded as a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. But as an instrument of Christ, you can hear Jesus speak through him. For wherever God speaks his word, that word is Jesus. He is the word by which God made the universe. He is the word through which God speaks to his people still to this day. So what does he say? Well, we read it together. This is one of the key theological interpretative texts in all of the Bible. This little five-verse section is actually controlling for the rest of the Old Testament, for the rest of the history of God's people, right through their history, from the settlement of the land under Joshua and even in the time of Judges, to the time when the land is overrun by the Assyrians, then the Babylonians, then the Persians, then the Greeks, then the Romans, until Jesus comes. And we're going to learn that today's sins, whether they're your sins or they're the sins of a congregation or a church, today's sins by the church have generational consequences. So let's listen to God's Word. He's speaking. I brought you up from Egypt. I brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. This is the land that I was talking about to Abraham when I entered into a solemn covenant with Abraham. This is what I pledged to Israel when I entered into a solemn covenant through Moses with Israel to bring them into the promised land. And that promised land is a symbol of what has been promised to you and I within the Christian church today because this promise to Abraham has been reestablished. It has been completed in the arrival of the one that Abraham has promised, the seed in whom all the families of the earth would be blessed. What is the land to the people of God today when Jesus says, the meek shall inherit the earth? It is the new heavens and the new earth in the restoration of all things when Jesus Christ comes again in power and glory. The God who had made the promise has brought them into the promised land. The God who has made the promise will bring you and I into the promised land of New Jerusalem, the new heavens and the new earth. In other words, the emphasis at the very beginning of this passage is God keeps his word. God does what he says he will do. But here's the rub. God had kept his promises. Israel had not Israel had been told, don't make any covenant agreements with the Canaanites. Don't fail to destroy all their religious infrastructure with this mass murder of babies and women and so on that it used as sacrifices to their various gods. Don't 
Uh, you, you must destroy all that infrastructure. God is calling his people to take a long, hard look at what they'd done. They'd taken the cities, but they hadn't destroyed the altars. So here's the dilemma. Look at verse 2. I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars. That's what I told you. But you have not obeyed my command. What is this that you have done? Do you know, just for a moment, pause and make that very personal to yourself. As I make it to myself. Whenever we sin, whether it's what we think is a big sin or a little sin or whatever, Whenever we sin, you have to imagine that God comes to us and he says to us, you have not obeyed my command. What is this that you have done? Maybe God is saying that to someone in the room this morning or watching on the live stream. What is this that you have done? So imagine the scene here. This is one of the great assemblies of Israel. They would go to Shiloh, and there they would gather to worship God. The whole, all of the tribes would come together. This was their equivalent of coming to church on a Sunday morning. In fact, the very same word is used, the assembling of Israel and the assembling of the church. The same word is used. They've come, and they've been reminded of God's covenant promises to them and their response to His goodness. They were reminded that they'd made a promise to God, and you can read it in Joshua 24. They had said this to God, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. And yet here is the angel speaking from God as God. He speaks the word of God, and the word of God is heard by all Israel. Now that's precisely what happens when we gather in church on the Lord's Day. You go to chapter 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation, and that cha- those two chapters are given for us to try and get us to understand what is going on when you come to church, when you come to the assembly of God's people. It's not just that we are doing a Bible study. You can do a Bible study anywhere, anytime. This has nothing to do with Bible studies or, 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 or any of that kind of thing, or even Bible teaching in a, in a class somewhere. When we come into church on Sunday... God speaks through his people. The human voice you hear is only an instrument God uses in order that you can hear him because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. There is a sacramental element to this. Listen to Jesus speaking to one of the churches in Revelation chapter 2. The words of the first and the last... Those are words, by the way, that belong to God, to the God of Israel, the A and the Z, or as we say it in English, the A and the Z, uh, the first and the last, the beginning and the ending, the God of Israel. But this is Jesus speaking to his people. The words of the first and the last, 
And here we know why it's Jesus who died and came back to life. He or she who has an ear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Right in those two verses, you have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit speaking to the church, God's Israel, assembled on the Lord's day. Now, that's why we distinguish between your personal Bible reading, a small group Bible study, discussion, whether it's a discussion or a lecture format, doesn't matter, from what happens in church. Here, God's Israel is assembled together, and the voice of God is heard through a human instrument. The instrument comes and goes, rises and falls, will one day be buried, but God's Word will go on. That's why in our Reformed Confession we say this, the preaching of the Word of God is the Word of God. And so as we are here in this room this morning, God is speaking. He's speaking to me. I don't know what I'm going to say next, which is sometimes very apparent. (laughs) And He's speaking to you and He's speaking to us. The Word of God comes to us. And what does God have to say to us today? Well, He may have to say to some of us, you've broken the covenant And what are the consequences of breaking the covenant? Supposing this is a message to the church in America today or the church here at 10th today. What what is the effect of, of breaking the covenant? Well, you'll be tortured by the Canaanites. You'll be tortured by the people of the world. They'll just they'll just try to to have their influence on you. You've made compromises already with the world, whether it's over those principles, self-serving principles, or truth-denying principles. And by the way, you can't take those elements, self-serving, truth-denying, and say them of one group and not of another group. These things are to be found in every group, every party, every theory, every philosophy that there is going around today. And so you're left without the protection of God. What have you done? What have you done? And he gives the verdict. There shall be a thorn in your side, and their gods shall be a snare to you. Well, thirdly, and briefly, what was the affect of this sermon on the congregation of Israel. And I say affect, not the effect of the sermon. The affect has to do with what they did. And there was a spontaneous and unanimous reaction. Everyone seemed to be carried along by everyone else's emotional response to what God had said. And superficially, at least, it looks hopeful. They lifted their voices. Did they confess their sin? We're not told. But it's a possibility. They wept. Their tears were joined with their voices. They offered sacrifices. They did some religious stuff. Uh, part, part of religion is good in this sense. They did religious things. Maybe they offered sacrifices to God, a, a burnt offering or, or whatever it might have been. Or maybe the word sacrifice there is they gave up something for God. 
So there were words, and there was weeping, and there was worship. Now it's true, it's true that true faith responds to the Word of God in confession of sin, in contrition of heart, and in consecration of life. True faith listens to the law of God and says, the law of God is good. I should do it. True faith loves the law of God because it's a way of showing God that we are His and that we belong to Him. And therefore, true faith is able then to embrace the forgiveness of God that is offered in the gospel. But these people were not doing that. Did they repent towards God? I'm going to spend a moment or two on this word repent. The most misunderstood, the most ill-used, and the most abused word in the evangelical vocabulary today. Let me explain what I mean. What biblical repentance is not? Words. Even right words are no sure mark of repentance. Saying sorry when you've been exposed or it's been exhibited publicly where your sins lie, like for Israel here. Saying sorry is a mark not of repentance, but of regret. I've been found out. I've been exposed. What's coming up next? The inconveniences, the punishments, the the upsets, the changes. Words in themselves are no mark of repentance. Tears, even real tears, are no sure mark of repentance. Tears can spring from self-love and the changes and challenges that self now faces. What we see from this chapter is that weeping was the most significant aspect of their response. We, we know that very, for a very clear reason. It, the pre, it was the preeminent thing. They may, they may have called upon God and they may have sacrificed, but the The central thing they did that is the thing that is remembered about the occasion is their weeping. That name, Bochim, the place was renamed, Shiloh was renamed Bochim after this event. Bochim means weepers, not creepers, weepers. Weepers. Weepersville. All they remembered about this was the tears that were shed, the bawling. And they did not cry because they'd violated the commandments of God. Did they cry hoping that that would assuage the Lord? The Lord would see the tears. Would, you know what you do? Somebody starts crying. What do you want to do? You want to reach out to them. You want to touch them, the shoulder, or... Take their hand, pray for them. You, 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 tears 
get a reaction. We, we all know the tears get a reaction. So if I cry, I hopefully will get that reaction. Maybe I'll go and stand and cry at the door as I'm going out. Uh, and this time not because you've stood on my toe. I like, uh, I guess it's a really ancient song uh, now. Tracy Chapman has a song and in which she talks about this kind of thing. She talks about the kind of things people would say. Sorry. Forgive me. I love you. Just wrote things that people would say. And there's that point in the song where the one she's thinking about or talking about who has uh, left her or abused her or whatever he's done, I take it to be a he has done. He says, she says of him that all he can say is, if I told you the right words at the right time, would you be mine? The right words at the right time, would you be mine? Tell me what I have to say to get back in your good side. Tell me what I have to say, in this case, to get back in your bed. Tell me what I have to say to make it all right. That's why in our pastoral counseling of people, especially people who have sinned, who are asking, what can I do? What can I say to make it right? I never help them. Because you know what they'll do? They'll take the words and they'll speak them back to you. That's not what you want. You want it to come from the heart. That's what, what is missing here. Paul says, godly grief leads to repentance. Words and tears and sacrifice aren't bad things. But real repentance is not tearing your garment. It's tearing your heart. It's fully exposing yourself. True repentance is being able to say, I sinned against you. That brings a punishment by law. Gladly, I'm going to take that punishment. I deserve that. I'll take it. Because that's what I deserve for you to have justice. And for me to experience the punishment I deserve. Because I realize the seriousness of what I've done to you. None of that was true of Israel. You just need to read the rest of the chapter. There was nothing changed in them. For all their words and their tears and their sacrifice, they just kept on doing what they would do. There was no heartfelt repentance. Repentance is to change your mind, change your heart, change the direction of your life. It is a thoroughgoing change that goes right down into the very fiber of your being. It doesn't happen in a moment, and it certainly doesn't happen by you saying, I repented. Repentance is something everybody else knows you're doing. It's not something you tell us you've done. 
Repentance is a radical change. And as we learn later in the Bible, to obey is better than sacrifice. And to hearken than the fat of rams, the rams used for the sacrifices at the altar. Maybe today, like Israel, your obedience is incomplete. You obey in these areas, but not in these areas. And you're playing around with your heart and with God, and God's saying to you this morning, what have you done? Spit it out. Say what it is. And if there's anybody else you have to say to, go to them. Tear your heart and not your garments. Let's pray. Lord, we pray as we hear your word this morning that that word would go to the very depths of our hearts, that we would take it as a word to the church here, word to the church in America, a word to us as individuals to be killing sin before sin kills us. We pray in Jesus' strong name. Amen.